Welcome back to a Christian and a Buddhist walk into a bar. My name is Jamal and I'm a Buddhist. I'm Jacob and I am a Christian. And we are here today in the podcast studio. Discussing Turkish bread part two. <laughs> Turkish bread part two. Uh, yes, this is our weekly podcast about um, the uh, the Turkish restaurant in Canberra, Little Istanbul. Um, it makes some great Turkish food. Um, and so, so, so what Sponsor Turkish... of the show. Yeah. <laughs> Sponsor of the show, please send us free PD. Um, what's your favorite Turkish food, um, Jacob? Oh, I wasn't ready for this. Uh, can I say baklava? Like, just go with the sweet stuff? I, I mean, like, I like pita. I like, I like uh, um, kebab sticks. Like, all of them. I will say, um, so from my very brief stopover in Istanbul... Um, Actually, um, can I revise that to, like, lamb cutlets? Okay. Like, lamb cutlets from Turkey and Greece and stuff. Mm. So good. Nice. Yeah. I, I was going to say my um, my brief stopover in Istanbul uh, taught me two things about Turkish food. Um, one was that I was like, I, I guess I knew this, but I didn't know this until I was there that, that falafel is definitely not Turkish and they just don't serve it, <laughs> um, which as a vegetarian is great. Um, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to Istanbul. I can have falafel. But no, no, you can't. Constantinople or was it Istanbul? Uh, sorry, go on. Yeah. Just no, a Tom no, Lehrer song. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I did meet a girl in Constantinople. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, no, and uh, the other one was um, I had the best Turkish delight of my life, which you'd like, you'd uh, like to think so. Yep. And, and and the trick yep. was it was not sweet. Oh, the, the trick was it was like super yep. subtle, and it well, because this like, is the problem with the Cadbury, not oh. sponsors of the show, Cadbury. Like no, their Turkish delight, it's just all sugar. It's, it's terrible, like you, yeah. you don't actually get the flavor. Yeah. Oh, and even the ones you get here sometimes, you just like it's yeah, it, just the less sweet and more rose watery it is. Yes, that absolutely. Just, oh, that was the yep. best. So good. So um, speaking of the, the best and so good, if you were listening to uh, last week's episode, you would have um, heard us talking about a, a forum that happened here in Canberra last night, our time, several weeks ago for you listening to this called Faith and the Democratic at the Australian Centre for Culture and Christianity, uh, where they uh, had a panel of a, a Christian, Jonathan Cole, a Muslim, um, Dega Ina, a Buddhist whose name Jamal is going to say again. <laughs> Uh, Chodek Rinpoche? Rinpoche? Rinpoche. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, Chodek Rinpoche, uh, Lama Chodek Rinpoche, uh, and Santash Gupta, who is the chair of the ACT chapter of the Hindu Council of Australia. Um, So they were being chaired by by Paul Bongiorno, who's a press gallery journalist here in Canberra uh, at the Centre for Culture and Christianity, if I didn't say that bit, with the Blue Star Institute um, also supporting the event, talking about faith and the democratic. So if you've not listened to last week's, you can still listen to this week's. We're not going to stop you, but we do think it will make slightly more sense if you go back and listen to last week's podcast. I mean, generally hot tip for our podcast. If we have a part one and a part two, generally go to the part one first. Um, (laughs) With occasional notable exceptions. Yeah. Apart from the one about the flying spaghetti monster, go to the part (laughs) one. Go straight to part three for that one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I, actually, before we start on this, I, I, I want to note um, one thing I observed. Um, so the, uh, one thing I observed in that room, which, again, you would expect, but I was a bit like, oh, yeah, okay, was like, I reckon we made up, you and I, uh, we made up about 5% of the room that were under the age of 55. Yes. 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 Which, you know. So you- what, what you're saying is that we were 5% of the room and we were under 55. 
Uh, yeah, yes. No, I, 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 think, I think we're more than 5% of the room, but I think the people who were under 55 oh, right. were yes. about 5% yes. of the room. Yep. Yes, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, um, you know, kind of that happens at interface dialogues and anything that is vaguely... Um, well, and, and like, to be honest, you know, most kind of panel discussion type yeah. events, is that kind of forum, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, I found that an interesting little tidbit. I looked around at one point, I was like, oh, yeah, there's like one other yeah. young person over there, but that's about it. There, there was an interesting moment, something I wanted to pick up on, is um, Chodek Rinpoche, um, the, the Buddhist, had a, a couple of moments where you said, Jamal, you were watching the faces of the Muslim and Christian next to him. Do you, do you want to tell us about that? You're grinning now. Oh, re- yeah. Remembering it was it. kind of funny. So th- this is the point where um, where, where you you claimed, Jacob, that this was essentially where um, where, where the Buddhist was the most universalist Absolutely. you'd ever, you'd yeah. ever of, heard. Of the, of the panel. Not yes. that I'd ever heard. But, like, I, everyone else has been quite, a, quite conciliary. In, fa- yeah. in fact, um, Daye Inna, the, um, the Islamic um, prof- professor of... Um, Islamic studies at CSU, uh, she she made a comment quite early on in the piece around the kind of f- finding unity with one another, um, and and she said words to the effect of um, we you know many of us um, worship the same God or follow sorry follow the same God and Muslims all follow the one prophet, mm. um, the same prophet, um, and so I, I thought that was quite an interesting kind of conciliar mm. um, tone. To strike, and and I just I think that the the Tibetan Buddhist was almost the least conciliar yeah. towards his fellow religious panel member. I, I would say that, yeah. So so this is in response to a question about the melting pot, right? So there was um talk us through the melting pot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so so there was a, there was a question posed around like you know uh, are you concerned about the melting pot? Like what do you think its impact is? And the melting- well, what is the melting pot? Well, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. The, the melting pot is um. Is a is a kind of theory that was, I guess, popularized with the immigration policies of the United States. Yep. Uh, it was this idea that you bring in people of all sorts of different faith backgrounds, all sorts of different cultural backgrounds. Uh, you uh, you know allow a, a level of cohabitation, a level of free immigration, uh, and then what you end up with is a kind of uh, you know a a melting pot, so to speak, of. Uh, different people with different backgrounds and different faiths kind of all coalescing and, and kind of all absorbing and, and integrating into the, the dominant or main culture or, and changing that dominant main culture yeah. as they do that um, in that country. Um, so, you know, the kind of the, the, it was kind of described as, you know, the first generation brings the old country, the second generation, um, you know, kind of moves a bit away from that. And by the third generation, uh, you know, you're, you are, you've left that all behind. Yeah, or, or you've got some kind of hybrid, of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, so in response to that question, um, our, our Buddhist friend um, mentioned um, that you know, so th- this is kind of at the end of, of that conversation, which we'll, we'll, we'll double back on because I found it quite interesting. But um, at the end of the conversation, um, you know, they were talking a lot about how Christianity was the, kind of the only religion in decline and the only um, and the only kind of religion where um, in Australia, in Australia, yeah. yes, where where the um, where, the, where that was kind of almost happening in in inverse where um you know where, where that was going on and um and and and, and Chodic Rinpoche kind of piped up and was like well yeah um you know there's he said that you know he doesn't feel like the respect for the the good bits of Christianity Christianity in respect to the culture of Christianity has gone that that's still there 
But what's people like charity and nice things and Anglicare and yeah, yeah. yeah and and and, and yeah, what what the Red Cross does and all yeah. that. Um, but what has disappeared is a kind of respect for the teachings of Christianity and the respect for the kind of theology of Christianity. Mm. And he just kind of went, you know, and and realistically, that's just because we're more educated. Uh, and he kind of went on this little bit of you know talking about how you know as society gets more educated, as society. Uh, you know, kind of, um, I, I think he used the word evolved. Um, I can't remember exactly. They but, might um, have done, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, as society kind of, uh, you know, learns, to, where individuals in society learn to think for themselves more and, and have a greater access to that education, they drop Christian teachings because, you know, once you learn enough, you realize that it's not it's not kind of true. Well, and and particularly what he said is that, that like, we we look at the story of creation and we go, well, that's just a fantasy like that. It's mythology. Yeah. It makes no sense. And, and that people used to follow the teaching blindly, um, but then the more educated and so on we get that um, they they don't. And, the yeah, the, the Christian and Muslim representatives on the panel looked decidedly kind of unimpressed at yeah, this statement. And, and then the Hindu representative was just kind of nodding along. It was just like, yeah, yeah. Well, which is just like uh, um, there is almost an arrogance to that, right? Because he was he, he was saying that um, what where he, he's saying that people, when we get more educated and kind of more secular in inverted commas. Um, the, the way that he described that arc is a kind of turn away from religion and spirituality because you challenge the teachings and you're thinking more critically and so on. But then they turn back to some kind of spirituality and, and that people are, are seeking to discover kind of what does it mean to truly be human and to inhabit our, our humanity. Um, and, and, and basically, as, as I heard, it went, well, and, and Buddhism is the answer. And the reason so many people are turning to Buddhism is because they're seeking to know what does it mean to be truly human. And then they discover the Buddhist teachings and go, oh, this all makes sense. Which I, I think there's yeah. a little bit of that there. I mean, maybe the, the nicer way of rephrasing what he said, maybe the way that I would, that I would think about it, um, is that I think there is truth in this idea that as you get more educated and as you... Um, as you get more of a kind of, you know, a higher education, so to speak, and a kind of an education mm. where which goes beyond, you know, which encourages a, a larger level of critical thinking and a larger level of analysis. I think it's very common to question the premises you were raised with. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I yep. don't think it matters what those premises are, but I think that to me is probably where the truth in his statement lies, which is that no matter what your no matter what culture you were raised with, you will inherently question that culture more the more you educate yourself and learn about other cultures and other ways of mm. thinking and, you know, and, and the kind of the, and critique the ways that your culture is structured. And so with that then comes a kind of exploration of exploring different cultures and different ways of thinking or whatever else. And, you know, you might gravitate towards, towards something else entirely. I, I, I mean, yeah, that's maybe the less, um, the, the less uh, combative way of saying what he said. Yeah, and, and I do think he was making that actual point about going, well, Buddhism is kind of like the more logical one. So, you know. Well, and I just, I find that really interesting, right? Because I I, I can I can see that there's aspects of um, Buddhist belief and understanding and things that, that make sense and that appeal. I've, I've said that before on the podcast. But I, I find it really um, difficult to, on the one hand... Um, 
kind of write off the idea of a god creating the world as well this is just mythology that like how could that possibly be the case and you can't verify it and so on and then on the other hand go but reincarnation that's a like you know <laughs> there's oh, just as and, much of a leap and, of faith and he's there. a tibetan buddhist don't worry he's there's a whole more <laughs> lot more theology than reincarnation there <laughs> we, might, we might need to talk about that at some point yeah. because the uh, the chinese communist party have decided that they get to choose who the dalai lama gets reincarnated <laughs> as which is its whole other that's true we'll talk about that another time um but um, yeah i um, I found it interesting in that conversation uh, that De, um, Dia Inna uh, was quite um, upbeat, quite positive about the prospects of that not happening in the Islamic community mm. um, in a way that other Muslims who I've spoken to kind of haven't been. She she was kind of reckons that the, the third generation and fourth generation are going to be like, if anything, more Islamic than their parents and grandparents. Well, and I think well, her, what did you make of that? Her yeah. point on that, I think, was actually brilliant. I, I This is one of my favorite points of the night, which I think was talking about the way that Islam, uh, particularly amongst migrant communities, is a cultural thing as much as it is a religious thing. Uh, and it really is, I think, a lot of that kind of turning back to Islam and being kind of engaged with that um I, I think there's so many angles to this, right? But like, let me talk through it. The, I guess the first point about the culture and not the religion thing, I think that is true, right? When when you have migrant communities arrive, um, they are deeply connected to their cultural communities. Mm. Um, and so even if you have a level of integration that goes on, even if you have a level of kind of moving away from religion that happens there, you know, if your culture remains... Uh, connected to those religions, then that will just, you know, th- that will just be a thing. You know, um, mm. uh, the the Christian uh, the, the Christian representative spoke a lot about Greek Orthodox communities yeah. and how that's kind of true of Greek Orthodox communities too. That Greek communities are deeply um, Christian and Orthodox Christian much more say than than even Italian uh, communities that would have mm. come at the similar time because it's such a cultural thing to be Christian. So I think for a lot of um, Islamic and Muslim migrants, um, the it's a cultural thing to be Muslim as much as it is to be from a particular country. But see, like that, that in itself um, raises questions about, like, well, how long is that going to hold? How, like, th- this is the whole melting pot theory, right? Is that that um, the the culture kind of um, and and um, she she spoke about. Um, Professor Ina spoke about the the salad bowl rather than a melting pot, right? Which that I really like. It's actually. not that everything blends into each other, but each each one brings their own contribution, their own flavor to the salad without losing themselves. Well, right? I, I think it'll hold as long as as long as the diaspora holds. Right, but but that's but that's the exact like theory, right? Is it does the diaspora hold beyond three or four generations? And I'll so, I'll share something that I I found kind of quite interesting. At one point, Jonathan Cole, the Christian, talked about. Um, uh, Anglo-Celtic background, and I listened to that, and I kind of I had that moment of going, well, I I don't identify mm. with what he's describing there, even though I like for, for all intents and purposes I'm I'm Anglo, right? My my experience of being Australian is pretty well indistinguishable from your average person of Anglo-British origin, but all of my family family roots are Germanic, and a hundred years ago. That for, for my my grandparents and great grandparents, that was quite a noticeable thing. And there were diaspora communities of Germans and everything else. And now there's just 
not. And the difference between me and somebody of, you know, British origin is negligible uh, unless they, you know, came to Australia as a 10-pound palm in the 60s or, or whatever. Mm. And, and so I wonder at that for the, the Greek community. Like, yeah, it, it, it holds, but I'm not sure necessarily how deep that faith goes beyond a Christmas and Easter thing. And, and do you see the same thing with Islam? Like um, the, the conversation I had with someone earlier this year was that, um, well, you know, the, the, the kids, the young ones, they'll come to Iftar or they'll come to a particular feast, but you won't see them every Friday. Well, yeah, and I think, so I think it does hold a bit stronger. And this goes to, I think, the big second point that was made, which is, I think, a really important one, mm. which is I think diasporas hold in the face of oppression. Yeah. Right. And so one of the reasons I think the Islamic community is less likely to break apart, and I think um, Professor Professor Ina was quite accurately describing that, was is that Islamophobia since the early 2000s and was has been rife in this country uh, and remains rife in this country. It's a, it's a huge problem. Um, for people of that community that, that you know, facing Islamophobia, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, and and but to- I'm I'm not convinced that that will hold longer term. Like the further we get from nine eleven, the the more that kids grow up in school with Islamic kids in the same class with them and all of that stuff. I, I think that will change. So I think it will change, but I think it will take a much longer than you think. So just yeah, okay. just, just to put this into context, right? I have experienced Islamophobia as a non-Islamic person. Yep. Right? I am a brown person with an Islamic-leaning name. And a beard. And a beard. But even before the beard, right, like I've experienced a decent amount of Islamophobia. I've probably experienced as much Islamophobia as I've experienced racism based on my actual ethnicity and my actual race. Um, You know, and and neither of which are uh, unfortunately very small. Um, And... You know, the fact that me as a non-Muslim person that is, you know, has a pretty Australian accent Mm. that really is not involved in any Muslim diasporas whatsoever, that I can still have had a fairly significant experience of Islamophobia purely based on the fact that my name is a common name in the Middle East, Mm. to me shows that it is not going away. And it's, you know, I, I think it is going away very slowly, but not anytime soon. And it's a really deep-rooted cultural thing that I think has been deliberately perpetuated by predominantly the United States, but also by others uh, for the past 20 years. Oh, and, and a bunch of groups in Australia as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and so, you know, I, I, I guess I go, like, I accept the point that eventually if Australia does get to a point where there is no more Islamophobia and the kind of the experience of oppression and the experience of discrimination is not felt by younger generations. I think you will probably see eventually a move away from uh, from those kinds of things. And yeah, what they talk about happening in that third generation of moving mm. away from those religions. Um, but I think I think you, that's going to be seventh or eighth, tenth generation yeah, okay. because of just the how deep the Islamophobia goes. Yeah, that's really interesting, and it's it's a hypothetical counterfactual we can't like Mm. we can't go back and experience what the um kind of anti-italian or anti-greek kind of sentiment was in the 50s and 60s well we do do have records of it though we uh, no no like we have records of it and it was there but like it's it's difficult for me to judge from that records like how similar is that to now or not because i i suspect that there is a segment of the kind of caucasian population that feels more threatened 
by Islamic migration than felt threatened by Greek and Italian oh, migration. Sure. But it's yeah, it's difficult to say what percentage of that is. Absolutely. And yeah. look, and I so I don't know. To, to me, that's a big point, and to me, that's a point that I think absolutely validates what was said around this idea that mm. yeah, I, I think for the for the Muslim community that won't happen in the same way. But I do want which to... contributes to more of a hybrid identity then rather than which was the the whole conversation about melting pot versus salad bowl, right? How much can you have a hybrid identity versus being absorbed and assimilated into the the host culture, so to speak? Which is actually something I do I, I did want to say about the salad bowl because to me that's a really interesting point that I think goes to a falsehood that I think exists in Australian society and in Australian uh, politics, which is that Australia claims to be a multicultural society. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think the melting pot salad bowl analogy is a brilliant kind of illustration of things. And um, I hadn't heard it before, honestly. So it was... was, No, it was new to me. It was new to me, yeah. Um, And, uh, yeah, to describe it in basic senses, you know, the salad bowl is the alternate to the melting pot where each of the ingredients that you put into the, the dish or into the country... Uh, they don't inherently just merge, but they do, uh, you know, they, they can remain as their own pieces of lettuce or tomato mm. or whatever, you know, whatever analysis you want to use. They can remain as their own cultures, um, but they find a way to coexist and they actually, the, the flavor of the whole salad is improved mm. by the by the combination of all the things. Um, but you're not inherently melting them all together and making them mm. into one one thing like, like you would in the melting pot. And, and for me, I've... I for quite a while had a fairly a bit of a pet peeve bugbear around this kind of concept of Australia as a multicultural society, which I believe is absolutely bullshit. Um, um, to me, a multicultural society is a salad bowl society, right? Yep. A multicultural society is a society which, in in the name inherently, accepts and validates and allows space for multiple different cultures to coexist in that society. A multi ethnic society is a society that has multiple different ethnicities uh, but doesn't actually inherently uh, you know, need them to be you know, uh, allowing for their own mm. kind of ways of being. So I would say, uh, and I'm, I'm fairly firm on this, but to me Australia is a multi-ethnic monocultural society. It is mm. a society that has had a lot of influence from different ethnicities and people from different countries, but there is a huge push in australia and you see this everywhere you see this in the citizenship testing that we do uh, which is the the the, the first example Fam- famously asking what don bradman's batting average yes was, or, or, but was. also asking do you have to learn english to be in australia to be in australia and also asking do you have to abide by the uh the the values of mateship and australian you know you know the, the, these these kind of esoteric values of australia that to be here, you know, do, yeah. do you have to do you have to want to be more Australian than whatever else? Like all these things that in the citizenship testing, in the selection of who we choose to immigrate, so we do. Well, this was you know, Professor E has kind of touched on this as like people asking like, are you more Australian or more Muslim? Like, ha- and, 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 and it's a false dichotomy, right? And yeah, and, and in that question, it's a leading question. There's only one correct answer, which is more <laughs> Australian, right? And it's like yeah. it's this thing where yeah, like. There is a push through the immigration system in in a very Mm. large way, but also even through our education system, also even through our kind of, you know, our allowance, uh, you know, the the ways that we expect communities to integrate, the way way that we actively, um, you know, that that we actively discourage diasporas, right? Like, um, Mm. you know, that... That I, as far as I'm aware, there is it is policy of of Australia to discourage 
diasporas from forming um, because, you know, they have arguments about, you know, um, ghettos and whatever else. I think they're quite racist arguments, but, you know, that it is a thing, right? Yeah. Um, and so we really, really push people to, you can come from anywhere you want, but you have to be Australian. You have yep. to adopt an Australian culture. Yeah. Assimilation. is a, Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, the one exception being food. Which we yeah, which again is the it's the most annoying. How we think argument. we're multicultural, yeah, right? Yeah, you're yeah. Like, oh, I have all sorts of different food. I'm like, no, you, you, we, we put all sorts of crap on our pizza, yeah, and, and you, therefore you just, we're, yeah. no, you just have taste. Australians <laughs> Australians just have a decent palate enough to, to accept that different foods are good and English food sucks. Um, so yeah, and 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 so to me, I kind of. I really hate this concept of Australia as a multicultural society because it just doesn't track. It's a multi-ethnic monocultural society. And honestly, the United States is a multicultural society. The fact that there are parts of the United States where Spanish is Mm -hmm. the first language and operational and that is what is spoken and you can't be in those parts of the United States without speaking Spanish. And the fact that you know there are there are communities there are asian communities where where, where mandarin or cantonese is, is is the only language and you know and, and again maybe that's just a thing of size and of people and whatever else and you know there's obviously a lot of uh melting that goes on in the united mm. states but but to me that is a that is a country that actually allows for multiculturalism and i think you know, i think europe does it a lot better than us i think the uk also does it a lot better than a, us that's a big call about europe uh, parts but of europe maybe, yeah, yeah. Okay. europe is not a monolith um <laughs> no that's true although it does have a lot of monocultures <laughs> um that, yeah. it kind of like touches on just to um do a throwback to the previous episode part one of this and we were talking about liberal democracy and i was kind of defending the the, the liberal in liberal democracy but there's also a view that kind of part of how that works is by creating a monoculture, which is not necessarily a, a, an Anglo or um, Western culture necessarily, but a culture of consumerism. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's kind of the, the glue that holds um, society together is that we're, we're treated as consuming individuals and that's, that's the way that things are run. Now, there's more to it than that. But what's, what's interesting around that is that I think that that's something everyone on the panel last night kind of would have said is a bad idea and that um, religion at its best kind of critiques that individualistic consumerist mindset because it calls us actually to to serve and look for the interests of, of others, mm. which, yeah. Yeah. Um, which, I don't know, like, I, I, I think it's... I'm not going to argue with your thesis, by the way. I, oh, okay. I, I think there's a lot... I think there's a lot to that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I was just trying to find a way to wind up my rant and just be like, all right, rant over now. But, yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's, it's an interesting point, and I think it's one that is well articulated uh, and was well articulated last night. Yeah. I, I do find the um, in, in typical uh, in typical Hindu fashion, it seems, the, the answer for the Hindu uh, was just like, no, nah, I'm not particularly worried that, that my kid's not going to follow my faith, like yeah. whatever. Yeah, whether my kids go to temple or not or whatever, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. if they want to come, they can come. If they don't, <laughs> they don't. That's, that's not the measure of a good Hindu. Well, and that's it, because Hinduism, as far as I understand it, which is, as we were saying last week, is not very much. But, like, there, there's not that same emphasis on the teaching or the scripture or the, the priest or the whatever. It just... It doesn't run on the same lines as certainly yeah, yeah, Abrahamic mm. faiths. Yeah. Um, can I show you something if we're if we're pivoting now? If we're Please. Pass yeah. the rant. Um, something. My my little rant. The the thing that um, I found interesting but also frustrating last night was how little Jesus got a Guernsey in um, Jonathan Cole's responses. Like he he started off um, by by talking about. Um, 
you know, should Christians engage in politics? And, and he had two reasons. And the first reason was because, you know, Jesus said the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And you can't love your neighbor as yourself without getting involved in politics and engaging in um, and then Jesus didn't really get much of a mention mm. kind of for the whole rest of the night, which was particularly noticeable because um, Chodek Rinpoche uh, brought up a few times uh, the teaching of the Buddha um, and, and certainly um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He, he, I would have loved to have heard more actually about how the Dalai Lama um, kind of impacts the, the teaching of the path within Tibetan Yes, Buddhism. Yeah, it's different to what you talk about. I would have loved to have heard more about the Dalai Lama's teachings and less about the anti-CCP sentiment that was going on. (laughs) I feel like the two go together. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying I'm inherently pro-CCP, but just like it was, it was just like, all right, come on, man. This is yeah. Um, So, but but so he's mentioned the Buddha a bit. Um, Professor Ina um, mentioned the the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, many times, um, and and Jesus kind of. Hardly got a Guernsey, and I, I would have liked to have seen more of a a basis um, from Jesus for how a Christian engages in politics, and and maybe it was just the way that the questions were worded and the way the discussion went. But we got a lot in, into kind of Christian culture and what does it mean for Christianity to have shaped Australia and be the dominant culture and how do Christians respond to that and rah, 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 which is not unimportant stuff. But well, yeah, uh, yeah. I would have liked more Jesus. Sure. I, I, think the, I think the topic lent itself, though, the way that it went. I think, like, I, I mean... Well, I, I just, I found it interesting that it was less than, we, like, we heard more yeah. about Muhammad and, yeah, yeah. Well, but, but again, I think this maybe goes back to the kind of the, the unique position that the Christians find themselves in, there being the dominant culture, mm. right? So, like, you know, all of the other religions are talking from a position of minority and from a position of, um, yeah, not being a a culture that, that has a historical roots in kind of in the political structures of the country, whereas Christianity does. So there's probably more to talk about there. Yeah, no, that's fair. And, and one thing that I didn't know that I, I learnt last night was just the level of Christian schooling mm. in Australia. And I think that the stat that um, Jonathan Cole had was that about 40% of Australian kids are in Christian schools. Like, I, I, I do reckon, though, that is a that is an Independent Schools Association of Australia stat, so I'd like to fact check. I'm sure it that. is, but like, but that's just not... And he, his point was that that's higher than the US, yeah. like, which is you know seen as this seen as a much more hyper-Christian nation mm. than Australia is. Um, yeah. yeah, I, And that's not to say all those kids are Christian, far from it. Like there are many Hindus and Muslims and like the, um, I think it was Santosh Gupta said like his, his son went to Marist College, yeah. right? Like so, you know, um, but yeah, that's just fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that is. And, and But and, I think it's a systemic thing, right? That, that's about how the Christian schools have effectively dominated the independent schooling system and that our our schooling system allows for independent schooling in a way that is quite different to lots of other countries. So a, a, a question, just having um, having had your uh, views before on multiculturalism, d- do you think that governments in Australia um, are, have, have some kind of inherent anti-religiousness to them? And the reason that I ask this is because um, there was talk about um, kind of marginalisation, like do Hindus feel marginalised? Do Muslims feel marginalised? We've kind of discussed that discrimination issue a reasonable amount. Um, And 
Jonathan Cole's take on this was that um, that discrimination against Christianity doesn't happen on the individual level, doesn't happen on the, you know, you're walking down the street, people saying things or whatever, but that he, he thought it does happen on the macro and institutional mm. level, which goes to that question of uh, is there a, a Christian legacy and just, you know, there are more bigger Christian institutions than there are Islamic or Hindu or or whatever. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that as, as somebody who kind of doesn't have a dog in the fight, so mm. to speak? Um, my first instinct is that it's a Westminster system thing. Um, so that I think part of the reason why political systems are I think I think I agree with the statement right that the political systems at least are more deliberately secular or deliberately mm. anti-religious you know I think about the US political system and you know the whole pledge of allegiance one nation under God thing and like you know they're, they're kind of quite explicit about it which kind of happened here once but yeah. like we're talking the 60s or yeah whenever well yeah. And I think maybe that was a thing you know in the US or at the puritanical kind of approach to the way they formed and whatever else. But I, I feel like to me, there's something in, inherent in the Westminster system. And in the fact that the Westminster system is predicated on the head of state also being your head of church. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I think there's almost a kind of thing of, it, it's weird, but I think there's almost an anti-religious sentiment because almost it's assumed that the religion is inbuilt in the system in that, you know, the, the, the king or queen of England mm. being the head of the Anglican church and therefore the head of the state of all Commonwealth countries um, and at least in Australia and, and those with, you know, most, most countries with the Westminster system were formulated in, under the Commonwealth. Um, that like this, I, I, I don't know exactly, I can't, I can't put my finger on it, but like there's something there, I think that kind of, almost allows for and encourages a greater secularization of the political system. Um, like kind of as a reaction to that? Is that what you're meaning? Or? Well, no, almost as part of that. Like that, that it's like that that the you don't need to be explicitly religious because your head of state is a religious figure, right? Yeah, that okay. Like that, that you, know, you are worshipping God through your whatever participation in the democracy because you are doing the you know the will of the monarch and the monarch is the representative of god like there's a, I, I there's almost like a a stepped out thing you do there i think it eventuates in a kind of more anti-religious sentiment somehow but yeah i don't know i'm not i'm not quite seeing how it gets to the anti-religious i me, me either but it's, it's it's a gut feeling right but i, so I, I, I okay. maybe let me take a track that i have thought out a little bit more um but like all right so so Again, I yes, I agree with your statement, right? I, I think I think part of it is that we do have these big institutions of the church that performed a lot of social functions for a mm-hmm. very long time, um, and I think those exist quite excessively in Australia, um, disproportionately. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, the only other place that I've seen it exist like that is probably South America, where, oh, okay. where the church does yeah, a yeah. lot of of kind of the humanitarian social welfare kind of things. Um, I've seen it a little bit in parts of Asia where the Buddhist monasteries are doing it, but it's not, I don't think, they're not big institutions, they're localised institutions Mm. that are doing it, so yeah. Because yeah, in Europe, even though there's churches everywhere and church taxes and stuff, the state does all of this stuff. And and I think, and, and maybe that's more of what it is, right, is that, you know, 
Australia developed a state that was essentially inherently less socialist and less mm. uh, interested in doing some of those social welfare things. And um, actually back to kind of colonial times, mm. it, it was the church that performed the social welfare aspect of the state, like like right back to the first plate. Well, and, and, I, and I wonder too whether that's connected to the kind of the convict history of, of mm. colonisation and this idea that, you know, that the people who, the white people who were sent to Australia were, you know, th- other than maybe some people in South Australia, and none of them were the elite, right? Like no. n- none of them were people who... And none of them wanted to be here, which is in yeah. stark contrast to the United States. Yeah, and so, you know, they were the poor, they were the the criminals, they were the whatever else, and and maybe the church was the only the only organisations that were willing to support them, that mm. were willing to actually come out and, and provide support services for those people, right? Because... You know, Which, sure, sure as hell, the the, the 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 institutional class systems of the of England weren't going to do it. Which tracks really interestingly, actually, because it's you know it reasonably well documented that um, Australia, certainly in the the beginnings of the white settlement invasion time, was not particularly religious like we, we we've got the documentation from the anglican clergy at the time going can't get anyone to come to church or the you know the chaplain to the first fleet like going okay military can you make sure everyone's at church cool thank you yeah. like that that's a there's a really interesting dichotomy there between a kind of a, a society that is apathetic towards christianity broadly like you know, arguably from the inception of white people being in Australia, apathetic towards Christianity at the same time as it is the church that's providing all the social welfare because the the government wasn't particularly good at that or well-funded for it. And, and, you know, for a long time there was no such thing as voter pressure or this kind of thing in Australia in the same way as there was even in the UK, right? Like as Australia was a different different base yeah i wonder too whether there's a layer of um the government treating the citizenry with derision early on yeah you know that that, that you know because well, they're convicts yeah they're not worth yeah. it well and also and, and the other angle there's an interesting kind of sorry just parallel between that and the treatment of first nations people in a way is, yeah. that's where i was going to go which is the other the very strongly missionary aspect of colonization in australia which was mm. you know, the church came and got a foothold because it was here to convert a bunch of people well, but the, the, that's just that's really interesting because the converting a bunch of people from the British perspective was w- w- kind of convicts as well as First Nations people, yeah. um, and certainly you know the the conversion in inverted commas of First Nations people wasn't always necessarily you know like like that caused more tension between church and state than anything else, so far as I can see in, in you know a lot of the nineteenth century in Australia. But yeah, no, I I, I agree. Um, I broadly agree with your statement. I I agree that there is anti-church sentiment, there is anti-Christian organization sentiment, um, and, you know, um, yeah, I think Australia is a more secular nation than than lots of others in its position. Um, And yeah, there is something there. And again, what was not touched on, which probably for good reason, but like, you know, I wonder how much impact the... uh, the the size and scale of the institutional abuse that happened in mm. the church in the kind yeah. of you know all through the the last kind of hundred more hundred you know multiple hundreds of years mm. uh and the kind of the 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 ways that the church organizations um 
you know, abused individuals, but also abused cultures and abused mm. kind of groups of people. Um, you know, I wonder how much there's resentment and backlash to that. And given how big that was, how much there's a kind of collective, now we want nothing to do with you going on. Which which is really like, it's, it's interesting because that tracks with what you're saying before about that connection of the church as kind of the welfare arm of the state and up to the sovereign and the whatever. Because it, it, it was, you know, it, it's not only the churches that find themselves in that position. And I don't say that to defend the behavior of the churches at all, right? But because of their prominence and their role and their so on, that's what kind of sticks in people's minds in a way as well. Um, yeah. Mm. We have skipped over a little bit the conversation around fundamentalism and nationalism oh, and liberalism. But, yeah. I mean, I also found that the least interesting are the, are the points that were made on the night. I think everyone was just vehemently liberal versions of their various religions and very pro-democratic. And I was like, yeah, yeah okay. Um, do we do we have a joke at this point? Oh, do we have a joke at this point? Okay, so moving on. Yeah, so, um, no, 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 no. Come on. All right. So yeah, come on. Of course we have a joke. <laughs> Did you hear about the time a Christian and a Buddhist walked into a bar? I've heard about the time a Christian and a Buddhist walked into a bar about forty something times, and it's been worth it. Ten. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, twenty five percent's a good hit rate. So they walked into a bar, and in this bar there was actually a um. Nasrudin, no. There was Nasruddin. Oh, you you adapted that on the fly. I there, can see your there, was yeah, there was Nasruddin. Nasruddin was there, and Nasruddin was attending an interfaith conference that was going on in the bar. Um, so Nasruddin bars was are there. famously the best place for in faith in interfaith conferences. And so, if you're ever keen for that, we go into a bar in Canberra once a month. Follow us on Facebook or email ChristianBuddhistBar at gmail.com for the details. And back to the joke. Yes. So Nasruddin's in a bar. Uh, at an interfaith conference. And, and Nasruddin's a Sufi, but Nasruddin's also pretty sceptical. And Nasruddin doesn't believe in a lot of different religions. Um, and, you know, at this interfaith conference, the the, the Catholic bishop came in uh, and, you know, and walked up to Nasruddin and, and laid laid his hands on, on Nasruddin and said, by the will of Jesus Christ, you will walk today. And Nasruddin looks at him and goes, I'm not paralyzed. <laughs> Whatever, mate. And so then the, ra- the rabbi comes up to Nasruddin and the rabbi comes up to Nasruddin and goes, by the will of God Almighty, you will walk today. And Nazarudin's like, no, come on. Like, there's nothing wrong with me here. Like, <laughs> like what are you saying, right? Uh, the, the mullah uh, came up and, and, and took Nazarudin's hand and said, Inshallah, you will walk today. And Nazarudin's like, dude, I'm fine. Yep. Not, stop stop trying to do this. Nothing wrong with me. Right? The, the Hindu sadhu came up and said, Betta, you will walk on your legs today. And Nazruddin's like, Babaji, there's nothing wrong with my legs. Come on here. Like, what is going on, right? And then the Buddhist monk comes up and goes to Nazruddin and says, by the will of the great Buddha, you will walk today. And Nazruddin's just like, go away. Come on, please. Leave leave me in peace, right? So I have a drink at the bar, they hang out. After it's all done, Nazruddin walks outside. And Nazruddin's like, oh, my God, I I believe in all of these religions now. And the Christian and the Buddhist rush out. They're like, what's going on? And he goes, my bicycle's been stolen. <laughs> yeah, that, that was excellent. There yeah. we go. 11. There yeah. you go. Yeah, 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 that was great. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, you wanted to, to wrap us up, Jacob? Do you want to kind of um, summarize what we've, what we've heard, what we've learnt? Oh, Any democracy major? is good. R- religions are inherently all peaceful and seeking the good of others. That's a... a we, we can dive more into that another day. I'm not sure I'm completely on board with that. The, the BJP premise. is not a Hindu party. Yeah. 
the BJP might have another view on that. Um, yeah, no, I, I thought it was a, a really interesting conversation. I, I particularly liked hearing from um, Professor Ina, uh, and I thought she had a, a really just saying a good take feels like it's it's undervaluing it. Like I I think I got the impression that she's thought kind of deeply about her faith and how to engage in that, but also in that process um, kind of come to a deep appreciation of the concept of democracy and, and existing, you know, coexisting peacefully with others and um, almost celebrating diversity. In fact, that, that was really the whole panel was Absolutely. talking yeah. about that a lot and I, I deeply appreciated that. Um, but the way, the way Professor Ina uh, articulated that, um, I, I, I especially like that. Um, so this has been Christian Buddhist Bar uh, podcast. We can be found at christianbuddhistbar at gmail.com. Uh, and vaguely on Facebook. That's true. Our music, as always, is by the wonderful Kevin McLeod. And have you heard, Jamal, because I have, that Kevin McLeod sleeps with a nightlight, not because he's afraid of the dark, but because the dark is afraid of him. Oof. Oh, yeah. Good old Kevin, yeah. Just... <laughs> Do you have Chuck Norris jokes there? Yeah, yeah. why not? <laughs> he's Kevin McLeod, man. He's, he's brilliant. See, See you next week. week.